Sovereignty was never ceded. Shine Boyd Kelly with their new release, Mirrorball. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, author Guy James Whitworth joins us. But in the meantime, we do have a chat with Just Shy about Mirrorball, recorded earlier this week. Thank you very much for having me, James. 
Um, what inspired it? Uh, it was really inspired by a couple of particular parties, I would say. I wrote the song during our second lockdown mid last year in the depths of winter. And obviously at the time, partying was very much off the table. So I was kind of harking back to like a few particular parties that I'd gone to at the start of 2020 that had like really specifically stuck in my mind and just been like so much fun with massive group of friends, everyone kind of like darting around and just like crazy parties. Um, So just trying to pull on those memories in less happy times, I guess. So it sounds like riding the track has really kind of, you know, got you through some bleak times and kind of got you into a really good headspace. Yeah, I think so. And it's actually been the same for the release as well, to be honest, because, I mean, we released it on the 27th of May and we're back in lockdown on the 28th. So I think like having the song out and, you know, just being able to see people get energized by it, both in Melbourne and elsewhere, has been such a kind of like ray of uh, like energy and positivity. Um, and, And for me, like personally, this lockdown, seeing people respond to it so well has been, yeah, just such a nice feeling. It's amazing, isn't it? The synchronicity that's surrounding this track. Yeah, it's crazy. I um, Someone actually sent me um, footage of it playing at a club in Texas and I'd never seen my song playing in a club before, so I was just absolutely astounded. So even though we can't party to it here right now, I was just like blown away to see uh, to see it happening elsewhere. It was amazing. Because it is the quintessentially, you know, kind of queer pop song, isn't it? I mean, it's so catchy. Yeah, I think so. I think, and, you know, it's very, like, snarky, very tongue-in-cheek, I guess, Um, and, you know, I think, like, quite outwardly gay as well in the lyrics. Um, And I think, yeah, we definitely, not necessarily uh, consciously when we were writing the song, but ticked a lot of those gay pop boxes with the, like, disco influences, the sort of, like, harmonies, the just the boisterousness of it all, I suppose. Yeah, there's absolutely no kind of, you know, ambiguity at all. It's a gay track and, you know, there's no ambiguity at all about, you know, the fact that you're gay. Yeah, for sure. I think um, with some of my previous releases, I've gone a bit more the uh, like the first or second person route where it's addressing a sort of like you, a genderless you, I suppose. But I think with this time around, it just felt like there was no need to Uh, I guess like no holds barred in any sense of the track, whether that was lyrically or musically, I really just wanted to throw everything at it and kind of like put all the cards on the table. So there seemed no reason at all to uh, not conceal, but um, not to just be super direct, I suppose. I mean, when I listened to it, I thought he's got to be writing about somebody. Are you sure it's not, you know, inspired by, you know, a real life lover? Um, not a real life lover. I'll say it was inspired by a couple of particular parties. Uh, make of that what you will. <laughs> so tell us about your collaboration with Boyd Kelly. I mean, you work together so well. How did you work together on this track? Like what were the nuts and bolts? Uh, well, the actual writing and production of the track was all done virtually. Um, we're both in Melbourne. Um, and as I said, we we're working on the track probably from like July, August onwards for a couple of months. Um, so it sort of began with like, I had been pestering Boyd to like start working on something that we could kind of create together. So he sent me first draft of the instrumental. I worked up like a load of different, uh, I guess, melodic and lyrical ideas. And then we would sort of like send different versions back and forth to kind of build the song into what it eventually is. So 
that was a really fun process, kind of bouncing ideas back and forth and hearing the song, I guess, really evolve uh, over time. Um, it was my first time working in that way and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so the creation of the song was all done virtually, but then obviously um, since lockdown or that lockdown <laughs> lifted, we've been able to kind of, uh, I guess, put our heads together a lot more physically in terms of figuring out how we wanted to bring it to life and all that sort of stuff, which has been super fun as well. It sounds like, you know, virtual production enhanced the track. I think so in some ways. I historically have definitely always been a, I kind of like like to keep my music to myself and I probably keep quite a white knuckled grip on it. So I think uh, this way of working was probably a good way of me starting to, I guess, explore that collaborative side uh, more readily without feeling like thrown completely in the deep end of you know, the thought of being put in like a, a room with like five other people and having to write together on the spot still feels quite daunting to me. But having, I guess, the safe space to trade ideas back and forth, um, I think has worked really well. But how'd you meet Boyd? How'd you two end up working together? Like, what's the backstory? Um, so I met Boyd ooh, probably about two and a half years ago now. Um, he works with my boyfriend. So we kind of just like were acquaintances socially at first. Um, and I knew that like he would DJ at a lot of house parties and he knew that I worked on my own music. So we'd sort of talked on and off about doing something together for quite a while. Um, and I think like really respected one another's uh, music taste. I think it's kind of a nice Venn diagram of my very gay pop fandom and his probably slightly more sophisticated house funk disco kind of flavor um so yeah kind of just wanted to do something to bring the two worlds together i guess any more collaborations in the pipeline uh there's a couple in the pipeline yeah i think we've been the last month or so very much in i guess activation and execution mode for mirrorball and trying to you know, make that into as big of a moment as possible. So we probably haven't been as focused on, I guess, the song creation aspect um, of late, but we do have a couple of others in the pipeline that are, uh, I think, really good as well. Um, different vibe to Mirrorball, but same kind of fun electro-pop energy overall, I would say. Activation and execution. That sounds very focused, very driven. Can you tell my day my day job is a marketer? <laughs> wow. Okay. What do you market? Uh, I work in the beauty industry. So uh, fragrance and makeup and skincare, all of those fun things. Wow. Fantastic. So you've been watching Drag Race? I have. I have. I've been watching the Australian season and then watched US season 13 prior to that as well. Fantastic. So tell us a bit more about these collaborations with Boyd. I mean, he's incredibly talented uh, and you just gel so well together. Like even the promo photos, there seems to be a real rapport. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're good personal friends now and obviously working on something like this has definitely made us a lot closer. Um, I think it's fun as well working with someone who, you know, I would definitely classify myself as a slightly awkward white boy um, and I'm sure Boyd would identify similarly. So Having that kind of like, I guess, uh, commonality or camaraderie uh, in front of the camera actually is nice. We kind of like force one another out of our respective shells a bit. Um, and like I said earlier, I think we just really respect one another's, uh, I guess, taste and musical expertise. And I think, yeah, our, our taste and our kind of focus areas are quite complementary where we kind of respect what one another is good at, but are able to kind of share feedback both ways as well. 
Speaking of cameras, any chance of a video for, for Mirrorball? Ooh, we've we've spoken about it. I think the thing with Mirrorball is it's obviously such a like nighttime clubby track. Um, and I think, you know, being able to execute something of quality set at nighttime in a club on a shoestring budget is maybe going to be a little bit tricky. But I'm focusing lots of energy on, you know, TikToks, Instagram reels, all of the content things. Um, and maybe we'll revisit a music video for another track. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, you could go off on a completely, you know, unrelated, you know, tangent and just create something, you know, through TikTok perhaps. I mean, there's just, you know, the parameters and the and the, and the possibilities are unlimited really. Yeah, it's been interesting kind of thinking about how to, I guess, like try and promote and market the track because I don't necessarily feel like a three and a half minute music video is even going to necessarily attract the same eyeballs as like, a well-executed, like, cheap, fun TikTok. Um, so, yeah, it's been fun kind of thinking about the different avenues that I guess are available to independent artists now to get the songs heard and seen by different people. And it's certainly, you know, appealing to radio. I mean, it's such a playable track to give airplay to. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, early days, but I think overall response so far has been super positive, which I'm really, really chuffed about. And I'm kind of just excited to, you know, obviously I want to keep hustling and promoting and all of that, but I'm also kind of excited to just see the song do its thing, I guess. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Just Shy on 3CRs in your face. So how did you get into writing songs? Ooh, I've always written uh, kind of on and off, I'd say since I was a teenager. I grew up in a, I wouldn't call it a musical household because neither of my parents play, but my dad has a enormous CD and record collection. So there was always music in the house. And then I played clarinet uh, right through my teenage years as well, which, you know, not the sexiest instrument, but probably gave me a good sense of like appreciation for melody, I guess. Um and I always like loved pop growing up. So I kind of just started writing then and then I uh, had a friend who had like a makeshift home studio and was lucky enough to do some dabbling there in later high school and kind of just kept going from there. So it sounds like the clarinet gave you a great technical understanding of music and that really shines through with Mirrorball. I mean, you're obviously very technically adept at songwriting and also just, you know, the whole technicalities of music. Oh, that's very kind. I don't know if I would... Uh, use such strong language. I I feel like I've got a big appreciation for melody and that is kind of also probably just based on the sorts of pop music that I love to listen to day to day. So I find like coming up with with engaging melodies a really, really fun exercise. Um, I'd say it's probably more comes from that than I think my technical training from the years of clarinet has probably largely faded now, but you probably still do keep like a baseline of of appreciation for, for basic melody, I suppose. And I guess growing up in a household where there was clearly, you know, a lot of love of music kind of created an appreciation for you without necessarily the pressure of, you know, being in a musical family and having to achieve. Yeah, I suppose so. I think you kind of get it via osmosis, right? And my dad's taste is super different to mine. Like I remember they live up in Sydney and last time I went back there, um, we'd all had a few drinks and my dad decided to put on like the Live 8 DVD from 2005 and he was wanting to watch like the Bon Jovi set or something and I was like, we're watching Madonna, give me the controller. 
So not necessarily identical tastes, but I think like music's music, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what about your mum? I mean, is she musically, you know, like inclined? I know she wasn't necessarily, you know, a musician, but did she, you know, pull on the CDs a lot as well? Um, yeah, I'd say to a lesser extent, my dad definitely came bearing a large collection. So he was probably the the main influence, but I think mum definitely probably had a bit more of like a refined pop taste, like big fan of Blondie. Um, I remember when I first discovered Pet Shop Boys, she was like, oh, I used to love them in the 80s and 90s, which was kind of a, a wonderful surprise for me. So in her own way, for sure. So can we expect an album from you? Ooh, that's a album feels daunting. I think um, as like an independent artist who's obviously, you know, all self-funded and, and kind of builds it all from the ground up with, with the help of some wonderful friends and, and contacts around me, um, I, th- I feel like right now for me, the prospect of an album is, yeah, a little bit daunting. Um, and from like a promo and visibility perspective, I also feel like having single after single after single kind of gives you more bites at the cherry, I guess. So I'd, I'd consider working towards an EP at some point. Um, but I think for now, singles is the way to go. So you mentioned that you work in marketing. What kind of, you know, tricks of the trade are you applying to promoting Mirable? Uh, well, I work in digital marketing, so I'm definitely very focused on, you know, what, I guess, digital channels I can use to, to I guess, get the song exposed to different people. I mean, um, I've tried to do like a bit of PR outreach to blogs, which has worked quite well, obviously trying to keep the content pumping through Instagram, um, looking at like TikTok and Reels, which is not something that I've I've done before, but I guess just thinking about all the different places that um, you know, the girls and gays who I think will like the song are likely to be in and trying to engage them there. So, John, your stage name is Just Shy. Uh, where did that come from? What's the backstory to the name? Um, I mean, I didn't want to use my own, uh, you know, full name. Um, and I think for me, uh, Mirable is probably a, a poor example of it, but some of my other work is quite uh, introspective, I would say, at least lyrically, if not musically. Um, and I think when I first started out, you know, you definitely feel that sense of, I guess, creative imposter syndrome sometimes and being on the outside looking in at what feels like a very kind of closed industry um, and still does feel like that in some ways. So I think Just Shy really encapsulated that sense of like being on the outside looking in and, and I guess very observational lyrics, but also that sense of introspection. Wow. So even though Melbourne's got this, you know, great kind of, you know, queer artistic scene happening, do you find it's still quite closed? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say the Melbourne queer scene. More, I'd I'd say like the mainstream music industry feels quite far removed for me. Um, and I'm still not really sure on like how one goes about infiltrating it. Um, yeah. So more in that sense, I would say. Which is so interesting. Like if someone that's got a background in marketing is kind of still trying to figure out how to infiltrate it, then that says a lot about, you know, the closed nature of the Australian music scene. I know it's always been like that, uh, but it's fascinating, isn't it? I wonder if it's because our market's so relatively small compared to other parts of the world like North America. Yeah, perhaps. I think as well, you know, obviously in this digital age, you don't necessarily have to constrict yourself to thinking about um, you know, the Australian market as being your number one. Um, I haven't really done a lot of live shows as Just Shy, so I think that probably 
um, factors into it as well. And I think for a song like Mirable, I'm also conscious that, you know, a lot of the references that I pulled on were probably more UK leaning pop and that really kind of high camp kind of aspect. So I don't necessarily always think about Australian listeners as being those who would respond best to the material. So how'd the track end up in a nightclub in Dallas? Um, so it's a club called uh, Barbarella in Texas. Um, and someone who um, I follow on Twitter, I knew ran a couple of club nights there. So I just shot him the track more to to get feedback and see what he thought of it. And he was just like, this is bonkers and amazing and I want to play it um, in my club. So, yeah, the rest is history. It was I can't tell you how much of a thrill it was to see the footage. It was so cool. Awesome stuff. Well, it's a great track. You and uh, Boyd Kelly should be so proud of it. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Oh, thanks, James. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
And that was Australian artist Kitty Ray with Red Lights. Absolutely, please support 3CR during our June Radiothon. Well, Guy James Whitworth is an author and artist whose new book, Enough of Your Nonsense, has just been released, and I chatted with Guy this week. (laughs) Well, Enough of My Nonsense is my new book. Um... I, I I literally today today is um, a big day for me. I got I received two boxes of my book, so I opened them up very 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 um what's the word hesitantly, and and peered into the abyss and looked into the these boxes filled with um books with my face on the cover. Um yeah the uh, the, the book is based upon the exhibition that I had last year. Enough of Your Nonsense, which is an, ex- an art exhibition here in Sydney, which I remember chatting to you about. And, yeah, I kind of chose that name. I, I really just like that expression of just oh, enough of your nonsense because it's, it's a very camp sort of expression. But I also just liked the idea of printing the, the, the flyer for the art exhibition and it actually would say, uh, Guy James Whitworth, enough of your nonsense, or the other way around. And it's really good because now... I've got a book published, and funnily enough, on the front of the book, in block multicolored capitals, it says, Enough of Your Nonsense, Guy James Whitworth. So there we go. You write about your addiction to writing. Tell us about that and how it happened. Well, you know, I I have a, um, I have an addiction to a few different things, um, but I, I'm, I'm very lucky in the way that my addiction is very, to me, a very, a very healthy, healthy and very productive and joyous addiction. Um, I remember sort of a few years ago, um, in Sydney, when I, when I moved here sort of from the UK, I had a friend who used to hang out with lots in the UK and then he came out to visit me here and, uh, in that in between time of me moving here and him visiting, he decided that he had had enough of drinking and that he had a drink problem and he'd decided to go on a 12 step program. And while he was here, he sort of looked for a few different meetings to go along to. And he and I were talking about addiction and what that sort of meant. And and he said to me, you know, you're, you're so lucky that you don't have that. You're so lucky that you don't have addictions. And it's kind of like, well, actually I do, but they're just, they're not self-destructive or they, 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 don't, they don't sort of take their toll on people around me or, um, not, or, or, not, or not massively. I'm sure people who Whenever I, I'm sure sort of some of my friends, when I have an exhibition or I launch another book, I'm sure they kind of roll their eyes and they're like, here we go again. We've, you know, got to go through this this system of watching Guy create again. But yeah, my addictions um, are very, to me, very healthy. And they're very, they're all sort of creative based. And um, I'm very lucky in the way that um, I, I consider myself an artist who writes and uh and that's sort of the order that i put things into um uh but yeah i love writing i love i love just losing myself and sort of um losing myself into my laptop and just sitting down on my sofa which is where i'm sitting now and um 
coming up for air about sort of, you know, three or four hours later, thinking, why is my mouth really dry? Why do you know, I need, I need a drink and, and sort of, um, uh, and yeah, and I've just lost hours. I've just lost hours of just writing out and sort of going through stuff and processing and sort of playing within the sort of the, the joyous space of, of words and of structure and of story and of all these different things. I love the chapters and the chapter headings in your book. One that really jumped out is the chapter called Leather Man Made Climate Change. What's going on there? <laughs> well, the title is a bit of a just a play on words. You know, Leather Man, Leather Man Made Climate Change. Um, it's, you know, sort of um, a, a lot of the book uh, deals with me working out where I am in the world and what I do within the world and whether that's a positive or a negative impact. And um, the, the chapter in the book uh, that, that you talk about, it, it's really me examining um, what's my legacy? What am I leaving? What am I, what am I doing during my life that sort of, that is leaving sort of a legacy behind me? And uh, one of those things is, is is that one of the things that I sort of you know purposely, intentionally do is I'm I'm vegan. I live I live plant based. I don't I don't consume animal products, and I try not to wear leather. And that, that that's a very conscious decision because I don't feel like those things you know sort of animal agriculture um, or um, the production of leather is 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 a is a is a, either a healthy thing for the planet or a necessary thing in this day and age, and um, and in that that chapter that you're talking about that you that you just mentioned, it's um, it's me basically saying you know um, uh, you know if somebody has this if somebody has the kink of of liking the look of leather I'm completely down for that I'm like yeah I get it you know sort of there's there's very few things hotter than a, you know, sort of a hot, sort of, you know, a hot, hairy daddy, an older man, sort of, you know, sort of in, in tight, shiny fabric, but it just doesn't need to be leather. You know, we live in a world where a lot of, a lot of fake pleathers and a lot of vinyls are made and they can be made now sort of in a way that there is zero negative impact on the world. Um, and we just need to shift the way that we think slightly so we can still have everything that we want in life but we don't have to make the planet or the next generations suffer for that. The opening of your chapter, False Flags, begins with, this piece is about how genitals are not gender, and that segues into an experience about a leather bar in Amsterdam. What's going on there? <laughs> I love that so far, every, every one of your questions is like, what's going on there? Um uh look you know I, I, I don't want to give away too much I don't want to sort of you know give away too many spoilers to the book um um oh, where do I start with that chapter there's so much going on in that chapter um it's about uh a very fun time in my life it's sort of the the, the whole book the whole book is sort of um structured in a way um of well, how can I say this? Because it's such a very big concept for a book, and I'm trying to. So I've, I've 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 done a few different interviews, and I've been trying to sort of squish down how I describe the the concept of the book, and I, I it, it's 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 a difficult thing. But basically, what I do is I take an artwork of mine, and I process um, what made me paint that, what made me sort of create this this artwork, what made me want to do that, what was I trying to say with this artwork. 
and um, and with that particular chapter that you're talking about, um, I, I talk about um, just just being in a place of my life of happiness and of, of you know sort of being in a place where everything is right and about how just some things in life, even though you know they can they can sort of be a little sort of difficult at the time in hindsight they can be sort of quite fun and rose colored and and yes there is an incident in that chapter that i talk about of of embarrassing myself in a leather bar um, in my early 20s and 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 readers if you're if you're hearing that and that's intriguing i'm just going to leave that there and uh, and say read read that particular chapter read the book um but yeah, it's one of my favourite chapters in the book. I even I sort of, as youngsters would say, LOL'd and laughed left out loud when I when I wrote that. I thought it was quite quite funny. Three C R. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 in a I'm in a very good place at the minute. I'm very lucky. Um, I don't deal day to day with the outcomes and challenges of isolation, but it is definitely something that I have dealt with in my life. Um, and yeah, sort of, it, it just mentioned in the book that I, uh, actually it's not really happening at the moment. It happened before COVID and then it's probably gonna happen again soon, but sort of for the past few months, we haven't been doing, um, haven't been running the, the, the drawing group that uh, myself and a friend put together um, through Acon, which is a, a, an amazing, um, amazing sort of uh, business here. Um, what do I call it? Um, an amazing not-for-profit here in in Sydney, um, and we're running sort of these drawing groups for older LGBTQI um, community members who maybe were feeling, or maybe are feeling, a little isolated. And it was very much sort of a social group that that sort of collected every couple of weeks to to, to draw, and I, I would invite in different different friends of mine who are performers or artists or musicians or whatever and we'd sort of all sit around and draw um draw the model um and yeah it was just it was a really amazing amazing group and I'm hoping that that starts soon actually I'm hoping that starts again soon because uh, even though it wasn't sort of structured for me specifically, it was something that I really enjoy doing, and I think a lot of people really benefited from. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you're aware, James. You know what's happening in Melbourne at the moment, the the lockdown. I think, I think there there's still um, a lot of isolation in the world. A lot of people struggling in various ways to connect and to feel connected and to feel that they are a part of of bigger of a bigger community or bigger communities um and that's something that i that, that yeah i process a lot in my work I, I i still even as an adult and i think i i think this is a shared experience sort of you know often can stand you know sort of in in, in very busy places and and just really feel quite quite unconnected and quite alone and I think we all have that I think you know sort of I try and put a lot of um of these human experiences into my writing and I and I know that within sort of enough of your nonsense um there's there's, there's lots of different reference points where I in order to sort of really talk about my my creative work and my my art practice I do really strip things down to the bare bones of what am I feeling? What has made me create this work? What do I, 
what what do I want to say within this work? What do I want this work to say, but also sort of really um, using my artwork to process the challenges that I that I feel or, or, or the challenges that I have in the world. I found it absolutely fascinating. Just speaking of you know your your art and your practice, that you paint chairs when people that you love pass away. That's amazing. Tell us more about that. Um. So there's a few sort of recurring motifs in my work, um, and I know that I sent you a copy of the work, so you would have seen, you would have seen sort of the the paintings, and you would have seen a lot of my a lot of my work when you read the book, um, and you'd have seen sort of you know there's there's things that come up again and again and again. The um, everyone always sort of asks, um, why do you use fleur de lis? Why 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 are there so many fleur de lis in so many of your your paintings? And and that's that's something that I dedicated a, a, a whole chapter to in my first book which came out two years ago called signs of a struggle which is a bit still available listeners still available at all good bookshops um but within this book um i sort of moved on and sort of talked about other things that i keep painting and i have a few different things um bikes uh there's a few different bike scapes in this in this book that i discuss why i I'm quite fascinated with bikes and painting bikes and what they what they represent to me. Um, and yeah, as you said, um, there's a painting that I talk about in in this book in in um, in the Enough of Your Nonsense book, and uh, it's called the painting is called Twelve People Who Will Never Sit Down Next to Me Ever Again. And it was me sort of sitting down one day and really working out how. Just of just people people in my life who I've lost over the past few decades, um, some of them quite recently, and I just worked out there were there were actually twelve people that I have lost over the space of my adult life that um, that actually I still really quite miss, you know, sort of they're, they're people who I would much rather still be around, and and I sort of I worked through that sort of that conscious grief or that considered grief, and made a list of those people's names and kept an eye out for sort of that, 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 that painting that you're talking about. Um, I, 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 um, I probably for about six months kept a, a sketchbook and, and sort of kept my phone next to me and kept taking photographs and doing sketches of different chairs. Uh, so there's, there's, there's one particular painting, which is called 12 people who will never sit down next to me again. And it's, it's those, it's, it's chairs that represent the character of those people who have passed, and um, and I think in this book again, there's sort of there's another painting which is uh, four chairs. Uh, I can't remember what the piece is called, but yeah, there were there were four particular people who who in the past few years, actually in the past four years, bizarrely strange, um, uh, have passed away. Who are people who I miss and who I just yeah as I, as I said just I, I wish they were still in the world and I said I wish that they were able to come and sit down next to me and fill that space it's a beautiful way to remember and celebrate their lives yeah it's I mean for, for, for me I, I you know what you know honestly James I'm really lucky I I'm just in this place where I I have a studio at home here. I um, I'm very very privileged. I completely acknowledge my privilege. I think there's a few different points in this book where I acknowledge my privilege privilege and talk about just how lucky I am to be able to be in a place where I can structure my world around dealing with things that challenge me. You know, is 
as a as a queer individual, I face oppression somewhat in my lives. I know that's a relative in my life. I know that's a relative term. It's it's um you know sort of it's, there's a sliding scale of oppression that I believe I'm on, but I'm certainly not um the nearest the top or the the bottom depending on how you look at it. You know sort of I have. A lot of friends who are, you know, sort of differently abled, uh, you know, women of colour who experience oppression far more than I do. Um, but I'm just very lucky in the way that I have a system in place where I can process this, you know, and I really get to, um, to, to, to sit down in my studio and think, right, how can I deal with the grief of somebody, you know, sort of somebody's passing or how can I sort of, you know, um depict the challenges of the, of the modern world um in a way that it gets it out of my brain but also sort of hopefully you know ho- hopefully as an artist i'm creating world work that connects with other people who, who who view my work and who understand what it is that i'm trying to say either with my you know with my entire art practice or even just with one or two two separate pieces three c You're listening to an interview with author and artist Guy James Whitworth on 3CRs in your face. What does enough of your nonsense tell us about racism? I mean, it explores it so eloquently. Oh, well, thank you. Um, oh, look, I mean, the, 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 a, lot of, a lot of this book was written last year and a lot of it was written um, during Black Lives Matter or, 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 or while the, the, the Black Lives Matter... Um, campaign was was raging for want of a better word in the US and obviously sort of you know um I think it's impossible to live in Australia and not be aware of the the rates of incarceration around indigenous youth um the unfair rates you know sort of the unfair percentage if you're if you're aboriginal there's so much more chance that you're going to be arrested or harassed by police in your lifetime it's um it's it's difficult because as as a white man I don't think I have I don't think I have much of interest to say about racism and that's because it's not my story but I think also as a right white man I certainly owe it to the people who are around me who are of colour to actively, actively try and do what I can. And some days that's something and sometimes that's nothing, but but there's there's normally something. But to try and do what I can to, you know, use my powers for good and for try and to, just to try and sort of actually, you know, sort of in, in, in the work that I do, you know, represent diversity, sort of, you know, challenge stereotypes, um, well, actually, as a, as a visual artist, not actively not in, enforce um, stereotypes, um, and and to me, you know, sort of, um, you know, um, being queer, um, uh, being trans, being you know, living as a person of color, um, the, 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 all of these things. There's there's this shared fight. You know, the fight that I have as a queer person is not a million miles away from somebody who is, as I said, you know, somebody who's disabled, who, you know, who, who is just trying to make their world in the way. It's 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 all connected, you know, and it's all various degrees, but it's but 
but we have to realize i think that sort of you know that that coming together um works so much better than trying to otherize each other and you know it's there's it's that whole cliche of, you know there's we have more in common we, we have more in common with each other than, you know, what is that? I'm trying to remember what it is, but it's, there's, we have more in common than, than what separates us or something. I can't remember what that quote is, but it's, but it's that basically. And it's that thing of um, using, using what privilege we have, because we all do have privilege to, to help and fight for those who have just that little bit less privilege than we do. I thought your generosity of spirit and heart really came out in the chapter, having a friend for dinner, where you talk about your friend, Luke. Uh, what can you tell us about Luke? I mean, it's a lovely little story. <laughs> um, well, that's um, actually it's funny. That's that's one of the mo- most sort of uh, I think startling. I like that word. Startling. Startling is a good word. It's one of the most startling images in the book, and it's a painting that I did. Yeah, I think I did that last year. I'm on, or maybe the year before. I can't remember. Um, uh, and it's basically with my friend Luke, who is a very solidly built man. He's a very solidly, sort of very muscular man, um, which is not uneasy on the eye. But he's dressed in a butcher's apron, and he's holding a knife, and he's holding um, my little dog, who, again, um, sort of has wandered off. Um, I don't know where he's gone to, but um, he's probably eating something he shouldn't be. But um, uh, but yeah, um, Matey, my dog, was the model for the for the dog in the painting, uh, and Luke's holding him up by a hind leg, which never really happened in the real world. Um, uh, and it, yeah, it's a startling image. But the the painting is called, as you said, having a friend for dinner, and it really is about the the image itself is really about. Um, you know that the the it, it, it's very much a, a meme on the internet. It's very well known of you know why love one and why eat the other. And again, you know, as being vegan, as being plant based, um, it's something that sort of goes through my mind lots of why why do we treat animals the way that we do on this planet? You know, sort of it's um it's it's there's no way that it's not going to come back and bite us on the ass massively. How um how factory farming is just impacting the environment in such a massively negative way. Um, and I think that painting to me sort of speaks about lots of things. It speaks about animal rights, but it speaks about just awareness and about compassion and about um, just being aware of the choices that we make of how we present ourselves to the world and how we, how we live, how we exist and the choices that we make. Of course, you and your partner organise uh, No Meat May every year. For the second year running, you've organised it during a pandemic. What was it like in 2021? <laughs> you know, James, honestly, as you said that just then, you said No Meat May, and my heart jumped a little bit because for the past month, um, well, for the month of May, um, it's so full on. In our house, in our in our little apartment in, in Surrey Hills, it is No Meat May headquarters. It is No Meat May Central. And it's, I, I don't mind telling you, it's actually slightly traumatic because basically my partner and I do most things. We have a few people who help us out, which is really amazing. But we sort of do, you know, the bones of it, most of it is, is just just Ryan and I. Uh, and it's so much. It's so full on. It's, it's as youngsters would say, again, it's, it's a lot. It is. It's a lot. It's an amazing thing, and I love it, and I wouldn't change it for the world. But, um, yeah, Ryan and I went out for dinner last night to, to sort of celebrate, um, the, the, you know, sort of it, it was over. It was, it's over for another year. Um, it, it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year. 
Um, and that's a really good thing. And I can I can complain about being tired because it is exhausting, but I don't complain about the success that we have with it. I mean, to explain it to listeners, it's basically um, an annual initiative for people to, I mean, the, 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 the byline is um, become less of a meathead. And it's basically sort of we give, we provide all the information that we can on people for people how to transition from being a carnivore into somebody who is more plant-based and, you know, sort of how or how, how people can sort of, you know, um, if they're, if, if they are, if they are a carnivore, then to go vegetarian, if they're vegetarian, to go vegan, um, if they're pescatarian to sort of, you know, to cut down on, on, on um, seafood, all of that kind of thing. So it's, it's really sort of, um, it's a, it's a thing that sort of is lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, uh, yeah, this year was a massive success. Every year the numbers basically double. Um, and uh, yeah, this year has just been huge. It's, I, I don't know, I, we don't really know if it is sort of, um, based on what's happening in the world, you know, sort of uh, with a lot of people in lockdown, a lot of people are sort of, you know, trapped in their house and, you know, do they want to sort of, you know, try new ways of cooking and new ways of seeing the world? It's it's hard to know really, it, you know, sort of would our numbers have increased as much if it wasn't for COVID? We will we'll never know and that's what it is. But it's, um, but it's, it's, it's connecting with a lot of people around the world, which is, it's a very, very, very positive thing. Now, of course, your book, Enough of Your Nonsense, is published by Magellan. Tell us about your journey getting a publisher. I mean, that's quite an achievement in this in this digital age where books seem to be kind of, you know, not so much printed anymore. Um, well, look, I like to think that myself and Michelle Obama, I really had to think of her name just then, um, have relaunched the publishing business between us. As you know, um, well, I could actually say J.K. Rowling, but we don't talk about her anymore because we just don't. Um, yeah, look, um, it is a thing. It's a thing. It's a it's, it's, it's really funny that I see friends and we'll be sitting having coffee and they're like, you know, so what are you doing today? And I'm like, oh, I've got, you know, a big, I've got a big talk with the, the editor of the book that I've got to do. And, and then I kind of giggle and I catch myself and I'm like, wow, I have an editor for my book. Like, who am I? Who is this person? You know, who have I been possessed by? It's, um, it's something that I always, always wanted to do. And I always wanted to be, I always wanted to have books that, um, glamorously had you know my name on the front of them on people's bookshelves and stuff but I never really knew what it meant and I never really knew what to do to, to make that happen and then a couple of years ago um I oh god probably about I'm gonna say it was six or seven years ago I got asked to write a piece for um for a an annual book that comes out uh, called um Bent Street the Bent Street Journal and that at the time would sort of use the byline a year in queer. I don't think they do that anymore. Um, but it was basically sort of um, a lot of different um, artists, a lot of different writers, a lot of different academics would write a sort of a short chapter about the year that had just been. And I got asked to do that. And I did that. And that is published by Clouds of Magellan, which is my publisher. And one of the editors there, he and I just got along very well and we sort of connected and we worked on a few different things together. And and then one day I sort of said to him, oh, you know, I've always wanted to, 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 to have a book. And he was like, well, let's talk about that. Let's, let's, let's discuss what that would look like. 
and then we went through and we wrote what I wrote and he sort of um, did a lot of editing on my last book signs of a struggle and then this one enough of your nonsense and then there is penciled in another one a third book in this trilogy which again James I'm having slight heart palpitations I can't quite deal with that yet because I haven't written that yet but hopefully that will happen and hopefully that will be out in a couple of years time and and I think sort of once that's all done once all three books are in the world then I'll be happy to sort of stand back and and that will just be that as a as a as a as an art piece or as a as a literary piece that these three books exist and they all kind of make sense separately and then definitely as a as a as a triptych as a, as the three of them together um but this book the second book um enough of your nonsense i i feel like i really hit my stride i feel like i really sort of i had some success with the first book and then i wrote this after this the first book and i feel like i really a lot of sort of there was a lot of sort of you know light coming through cloud moments where I was kind of like oh yeah this makes sense this is what writing is about this is this is you know this worked in the first book and I really like doing this so this is this is the sweet spot and and a lot of sort of writing because um, I, I never studied obviously I never studied uh, writing so it's something that I'm self-taught uh, which is not dissimilar to um, my painting because I never studied art. Um, and and with this book, just a lot of stuff really clicked, and I really understood about, you know, tone and line, and um, the the sort of the the importance of an of a of a strong narrative in a story, which is something that I've taught myself in painting, and I feel like I finally sort of understood a lot better when when, when writing this book. What a fantastic achievement! And not to be nonsense, Guy James Whitworth. Thank you so much for chatting <laughs> with me today on Three CR. Uh, thank you. And it, it's going to be funny to have this experience of finishing interviews with people and they say enough of your nonsense. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, James. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face, taking us as Victorian artist Louise Terra with her track Nature Calling.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.